Pro Se is sponsored by Lexus Plus. In 1973, LexisNexis introduced the world to online legal research, reshaping the industry forever. Today, we're doing it again, and this time it's not just legal research, it's the total experience. Visit LexisNexis.com slash LexisPlus to access legal research, data-driven insights, and practical guidance all in one place. That's LexisNexis.com slash L-E-X-I-S-P-L-U-S. Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone, and uh, happy early Halloween. It is my favorite time of year. It's the spookiest time of the year. (laughs) Your your favorite spooky legal news podcast, Pro Se. Yeah, Uh, I I can't wait to eat a medically inadvisable amount of M&Ms and other similar items i was having a chat with some uh, (laughs) other colleagues at the office about how costumes this year are just like waste up anything that can be seen on a zoom call oh yeah sure (laughs) sure the best you can't do any any really like lower body heavy costumes um i don't know what those are well that's what makes ruth bader ginsburg a perfect costume this year because you just wear the jabot and you know pull your hair back if you're a woman and then that's that's a really good one so well i'm glad i'm glad uh you know that's a nice place to we can talk about what we're going to talk about on the show today because uh you know we saw this week the the confirmation of amy coney barrett to the u.s supreme court and so we decided to have a very interesting conversation with our Supreme Court reporter, Jimmy Hoover, about uh, the issue of potential changes at the Supreme Court. The the, the confirmation of Barrett yeah. to, the, to the court has seen a lot of discussion of, quote, unquote, court packing and other potential potential changes, you know, things that maybe will de-escalate some of the the craziness we've seen that that really culminated um, in Barrett's confirmation. So um, we had a Alex and I had a really great chat with Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, stick around to the end of the show to hear that. We do have some news to get to first, and there's certainly a lot going on. We've already hinted at some of it. There's a new Supreme Court justice. There's an election. There's a pandemic. You might have forgotten that the president is currently being sued for defamation by a woman who has accused him of rape. Um, And we had um, a pretty uh, interesting development on that front this week. There was a federal judge blocked the, uh, the Department of Justice from attempting to represent Trump in that case. They were trying to replace his personal counsel uh, and sort of treat it as a matter of federal business. Uh, And the judge denied that move this week, uh, basically ruling that the president is not covered um, by a federal law that is meant to shield government employees uh, from defamation suits. So, Alex, I mean, you you hinted at it right there in your setup that we maybe have forgotten all the contours of this case just by virtue of there being so many cases against Trump, so many other big yeah. news developments. I need you to remind me what's going on here. Yeah. So there's there's lots of interesting things at play, and it's not, it, it, it's all sort of underlying all of it is a very serious accusation, which I'll talk about in a moment. And then we get into some uh, pretty interesting legalese type of stuff. I don't want to sort of step step past the very serious accusation, which is that um uh the former L magazine writer E Jean Carroll uh claims that Trump raped her in a department store dressing room in the mid 1990s um 
there is litigation going on about that allegation right now. It is not about the incident itself. Uh, Carol is suing Trump, basically saying that um, when she unearthed the allegation in a book that she was writing, Trump called her a liar, said the book should be in the fiction section, etc., and Carol is saying that that denial, calling her a liar, saying it's not true, defamed her. It defamed her character. Uh, her character was damaged uh, you know, with, with her readers and all this. So it is a defamation suit about his denial. Um, so uh, she filed suit in New York State Court, and that is where her lawyers and Trump's personal lawyers battled it out for a while. There was a dismissal attempt, and then uh, that, was, that was denied. Um, that played out for a few months. But then came... Uh, a, a relative bombshell last month when the DOJ intervened to replace Trump's personal counsel and instead brand the case as a matter of official government business and move the dispute to federal court. This was um, very unusual um, and drew a ton of scrutiny from the legal community, academics, people like that. And it has it, it has become its own sort of dispute within the broader defamation case. Um, so a lot of eyeballs on it. Among other legal narratives with the Trump administration, I think one that people have discussed a lot is the extent to which uh, the the resources of the Department of Justice have been used in a somewhat more personal way than they have with previous presidents. W- w- why did the DOJ here say, and this feels, you know, because this feels um, like a perhaps very extreme example of that. Why did the DOJ say that they could jump in and, and work this case as opposed to his personal attorneys? Yeah. Well, I think what makes it really interesting is that the 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 law that they cite as giving them permission to represent him, which I'll talk about in a second, um, has has a lot of little prongs to it. And what's interesting about this is that it's not just about the facial question of who's allowed to represent Trump. It's not like the government has better lawyers than his than his personal lawyers or anything like that. Um, but by claiming that Trump's denial of this allegation was made, you know, as was a presidential action, the DOJ is effectively trying to kill the case entirely. And that's because there are federal laws on the books that effectively shield federal employees from defamation claims stemming from the performance of their duties. So while it is on its face a a question about who uh, who can represent the president, it actually was the livelihood of the suit itself because the thinking was if the DOJ intervenes, they're going to cite these federal laws and the case is effectively dead. So before the judge, we effectively had two questions at play here, uh, which are both interesting in their own ways. One is, uh, which sounds this sounds kind of strange to say out loud, but the first one is whether the president is a, quote, employee of the government that is shielded by these laws. And two... Even if he is an employee of the government, were his statements denying the Carroll allegations made in his official capacity? So those are the two things that the judge was digesting um, in the motion before him. Yeah, this is a really interesting one to ponder. I'm sure it's interesting for the court to be tackling because there's lots of allegations that get thrown around about how Trump wants to expand his executive power to be a shield against any kind of lawsuit. So this is sort of part of that same narrative. Um, mm-hmm. Did we get any answers um, from the court this week? Yeah. So the answer to both those questions that I said is no. Um, for, you know, it's uh, on the first question. It seems it seems strange to say 
that the president is not an employee, but uh, the judge who was hearing the case was uh, uh, New-, New York federal judge Lewis Kaplan. Um, and uh, the opinion that he wrote is a really interesting look at like the general shape and nature of the role of the presidency. So on the first question, he says that because the president has no real boss, <laughs> he's not really an employee of the government. Here is the quote. He said, Quote, the government has identified no component of the United States of which the president is an officer or employee. That's that that was his view of it. He instead said that instead of being an employee, the president is a constitutional officer. Right. His boss is the Constitution or the American people. But that is not the same kind of. Yeah. I just like this as a theoretical thing where it's like, yeah, you just can't be an employee if you have no boss. You need a boss to be an employee. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, and the you know the, the the I think most people know. I mean, the president is not a dictator. There are checks on him, but he has no real boss, as you as we understand the term. More importantly, though, so I mean that's kind of that's almost academic because more importantly, Judge Kaplan said that even if he could consider the president to be an employee that could get this protection from this defamation suit, it wouldn't matter in his opinion um, because the the uh, sort of timing of these claims has nothing to do with his job as the president. Quote, his comments concerned an alleged sexual assault that took place several decades before he took office, and the allegations have no relationship to the official business of the United States. So this, um, you know, breathes new life into the suit, to use a, to use a, a classic legal journalism cliche. Uh, the, case, the case will go on. We haven't heard yet if the government is going to appeal but it's a really interesting ruling. This is this is an administration that has argued for, you know, legal immunity for the president in a number of contexts over the past few years. They tried to do so again here. Um, and we have a federal judge saying no. So we'll uh, definitely keep our eyes peeled uh, on what happens in this uh, really interesting case. Well, we'll go from a federal judge saying no to a North Carolina state judge saying yes. <laughs> That's great. What a transition. Uh, yes. Some judges say no. Some judges say yes. This is very interesting. <laughs> a, uh, a North Carolina judge um, issued a first of its kind ruling this week uh, about how in- insurance policies should apply to businesses that have been affected by by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, uh, the judge ruled that an insurance company uh, did, in fact, have to pay out on a business interruption policy for a group of restaurants in North Carolina. The decision is really important because um, there are literally more than a thousand of these cases filed in courts around the country. Um, and, you know, it, it I think I, I don't think it needs to be uh, stated for the listeners that that small businesses and, and companies that, you know, the, the bars and the restaurants and the yoga studios out there, uh, you know, it, this could mean life or death, whether or not their their insurance policy pays out for this interruption. So, I mean, nobody really needs to be reminded that we're all living through a global pandemic right now. But I think one Get thing that's here, maybe, Amber. What are you, what are you know, right? talking about? I think one thing yes. that is confusing, though, is that we've talked about a lot of different kinds of COVID-related lawsuits on Pro Se. We haven't really gotten into this specific sort of branch of those lawsuits. What are they um, asking insurance companies to do? Like, how did this get into court? Yeah, it's interesting because this is uh, arguably the biggest bucket of of, in, yeah. of lawsuits that have been filed over the pandemic. Yeah, it was one of the central legal questions. I mean, there's a million other like societal and health questions, and they but like the big legal questions is like you know how how can I recoup any losses here? Right. So yeah. 
every one of these bars and gyms and every other business that has been affected by either a shutdown or by just, you know, um, the 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 pandemic generally has a uh, an insurance policy and and um, you know for that, that covers something called quote business interruption. Um, the idea is if you have this unforeseen shutdown that you should have uh, an insurance policy to help you get through it. But the insurance companies that wrote those policies say that they don't cover pandemics. They were only intended to cover physical damage to your property. So. Um, some of them even have these explicit carve outs that say this doesn't cover disease. It doesn't cover, you know, health scares or anything like that. Um, but the insurers say that none of them, regardless of the carve outs, were, were priced to cover this. That, that if, mm-hmm. if you start paying, if you have, if they have to pay out the whole country for this, all the insurers will go bankrupt because they didn't, you know, they didn't plan for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could like, COVID itself and and the the shutdown measures that that have come from it, um, you know, they're not physical damage to a building, um, but they're certainly an yeah. unforeseen interruption that has that has left a ton of uh, businesses around the country really, really, really at risk and really probably thinking that maybe this is what this policy was here for. And you you pretty much across the board have seen insurers deny that coverage. So we have a ton of lawsuits over this. As I mentioned earlier, um, uh, the University of Pennsylvania Law School has been keeping track of these. There's nearly 1,200 uh, cases like this that have been filed in federal and state courts around the country seeking to force insurers to uh, to cover these kind of claims. I would imagine there is a lot of commonality between those hundreds of lawsuits in terms of what they're asking and and the the, the remedies they're seeking. But what is this case about? This 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 North Carolina case. This case was filed by the owners, the two owners of a restaurant group in the um, the Durham area in North Carolina. They own sixteen high end restaurants, so uh, you know, pretty big footprint. Um, yep. Uh, they they sued the Cincinnati Insurance Company, um, who which was the the business the provider of business interruption insurance for their restaurants. They said they were owed coverage under the the interruption policies. Um, the specific clause in question here is um, the the policy covers quote accidental physical loss or accidental physical damage. Um, so in response, Cincinnati has argued, much like other insurers, that coverage does not apply because the the policy requires there to be, um, quote, physical alteration to the property. Uh, mm-hmm. That is the common argument in these cases, other than, you know, there's an explicit carve out for these kind of things. That's the yeah. argument that you hear from the insurers. Yeah. So the insurers are we're anticipating things like, you know, a tree falls onto your building and you have to close the dining room of your restaurant, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, but so, it, it, you know, and, and it's it's interesting, as we said before, the stakes are really high and, and it's not it's not, you know, the insurers would have you believe that it is very simple to decide this question. But um, <laughs> you're right. Uh, but Durham Superior Court Judge Orlando Hudson last week uh, sided with these two restaurant owners. He said that the Cincinnati policy in question, um, he stressed that that it said physical loss or or physical damage. Meaning when you use or in that sentence, he said it it should probably mean that the two things have separate yep. meanings. Um, we're getting I, into sort of wonky no, construction I mean, here. I, but. My my antenna went up when you when you read it the first time. I was like, mm, there's gonna be a difference between loss and damage. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so the idea here was that loss, you know, 
could or should cover these COVID shutdowns. At, yeah. at the very least, it's ambiguous. And that the way this these cases sort of work is that ambiguity should be resolved in the favor of the policyholder. She sure. also noted, mm-hmm. obviously, as I mentioned earlier, that many of these policies have explicit stuff about this. This policy did not have that. So it left it open to just figuring out that that more vague, uh, you know, loss or damage uh, mm-hmm. language. It's a fascinating ruling, and I think we've made clear by now that the there's a lot of eyeballs on it in terms of what it means for you know COVID insurance disputes generally. It is just it is one sort of state court decision. I'm, I, we we don't want to overstate you know to what extent it bears on these pending cases. But what is what is the upshot? I mean, what how do people view this decision as affecting the the landscape of COVID insurance litigation? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, Cincinnati, the insurer, uh, obviously immediately said they were going to appeal. They said they yeah. continue to believe that the the policies in question here are not triggered unless there is this you know, quote structural alteration to property. So yeah. um it will presumably go to a North Carolina state appeals court. We'll see where that goes. Um as we mentioned earlier, the it, it is the first ever ruling that sided yeah. with the owners on this specific COVID question when it comes to these business interruption policies. Um, the vast majority of these cases are still pending. They haven't had rulings at all yet, but, but there have been a dozen or so that have been tossed out. So mm-hmm. um, it is the first time we've seen one go this way. We've seen quite a few go the other way already. Um, yeah. These cases still do face an uphill climb. A lot of the policies have specific carve-outs, exceptions for this kind of stuff. Um, And as you mentioned, Alex, it is just one state-level, trial-level judge. So not a whole lot of precedential value. But it's certainly, you know, in in the context of this situation where I think a lot of people thought, these cases, these really just might be a non-starter. These lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Um, the the ruling is certainly good news for policyholders who are trying to make a similar argument in that context. They can point to this reasoning. You know, it's not dispositive, but it's it's persuasive at least that that you know some judge has looked and put down a framework under which you can look at these contracts and say yes, these restaurants that are dealing with this horrible problem deserve some level of coverage. Once again, Pro Se is sponsored by Lexis Plus. In 1973, LexisNexis introduced the world to online legal research, reshaping the industry forever. Today, we're doing it again, and this time it's not just legal research, it's the total experience. Visit LexisNexis.com slash LexisPlus to access legal research, data-driven insights, and practical guidance all in one place. That's LexisNexis.com slash L-E-X-I-S-P-L-U-S. The confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court just days before a presidential election has sparked widespread discussion of possible reforms at the U.S. Supreme Court, often under the label of, quote, court packing. But what exactly do people mean when they say that? And what changes might realistically be ahead? Here to discuss uh, the issue is our very own Supreme Court reporter, Jimmy Hoover. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. He's a Supreme Court reporter and, of course, the, the, the co-host of Law 360's The Term. Please like, download, and subscribe and all of that. We appreciate your work on that one, Jimmy. Great. Thanks. Great little plug there. I love <laughs> it. I, I, pre- I, I do appreciate that. 
So we've been hearing in the final weeks of this presidential election and looking forward, we've been hearing the term court packing a lot. And I think if, if Democrats do well on Tuesday, we're going to be hearing it a whole lot more. So when people say that, I know it's a little bit pejorative. When people say that, what do they mean? What exactly are we talking about here? So, so when we're talking about court packing or court reform is the probably the phrase that yeah. your proponents would use because court packing comes with, with its own historical baggage, you're basically talking about any structural change to the Supreme Court, either changing the number of justices that sit on the court or introducing some kind of term limit or other form of change into how the Supreme Court has basically been set up for over 100 years since you know the, the nine justices were set back in... Uh, by Congress in 1870. And the reason this has picked up steam, obviously, uh, you know, it's been talked about ever since, you know, it's been talked about pretty significantly since uh, uh, Senate Republicans blocked President Obama's nominee to the court, uh, Merrick Garland, but it's only gained steam throughout the Trump administration as Republicans have put, as Trump has put, you know, more justices on the court. Well, and it's called attention to to the idea that, you know, there's there's nine justices, we've gotten used to nine justices, but there's nothing constitutionally that requires there to be nine justices no and i think that is why you're seeing a groundswell of support for the idea of just adding justices to the court because there are a number of ways in which a number of proposals that people have floated over the years to just kind of reform the court or depoliticize their court uh, the court in their eyes whether it's term limits or even just weakening um the authority of the supreme court but the reason you've seen expanding the court have such support is because exactly as you say it's a little bit easier to do you don't need a constitutional amendment there's nothing in the constitution that says there has to be nine justices and so that is why you've seen a a number of prominent uh, democrats and progressives say you know should uh, democrats win back the senate and the white house it would just be as simple as you know eliminating the legislative filibuster which currently sets the threshold for any legislation at 60 votes in the senate and then just changing passing a law that says that you know now there are the supreme court consists of let's say 13 justices so you would mm-hmm. give uh, the democratic president in this case joe biden the opportunity to nominate four more judges to the supreme court to kind of balance out um, the current conservative supermajority that we've just uh, received with the appointment of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, it's very interesting, as you point out, that the the even the language around this is beginning to to shift a little bit. You know, people don't say court packing; they say court reform, which can catch a number of other proposals that we'll talk about later. But on the specific point of adding new justices, I want to talk about the the genesis of that and why you're hearing so much about that these days. I remember that first starting to percolate in 2016 when Justice Scalia died and then Merrick Garland didn't even get put up for a vote. It bubbled up then. And I would imagine that the circumstances of the Coney Barrett nomination and uh, confirmation process have only led those calls to grow louder. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, the reason why the phrase has so much baggage is, you know, just historically, it's something that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, good old FDR, tried to do back in the the 30s. And he was Mm -hmm. actually, um, and he actually met some resistance from his members of his own party, Democrats. You know, he was trying, Mm -hmm. he was very frustrated with a conservative Supreme Court that was kind of throwing a wrench into his New Deal. Right. So he, he introduced this legislation um, to basically add justices. And so it was deemed court packing back then. It was sure. considered very unsavory. It was unsuccessful. 
Um, and so it really hasn't been, it's like a third rail in politics that they haven't really gone back to until just recently after, with the, just how far, you know, the bitterness has devolved around the Supreme Court in recent years, mm-hmm. especially after Garland. But then you saw, you know, things picking up even more after the contentious confirmation fight over Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who was yeah. you know, obviously accused of sexual assault back in the, back in the 80s. And then the, I think the final straw that we've seen has been just the fact that Democrats see the supreme hypocrisy uh, on the part of Republicans to rush through mm-hmm. you know, their third appointee to the court in the dying days before the election after they held open the uh, Justice Scalia's seat for over a year, in part because they said the American people should have you know, a say in who yeah. joins the court. So that, I think, is why you've seen so much of a groundswell. Um, so it's it's I think we firmly established that it's an idea that's that, that you're hearing more about. What have Republicans said that they will do if I mean, there's a lot of ifs in play if the Democrats, you know, take the Senate and then if they decide to actually do this, what are they what are they like sort of warning against? I imagine they don't like it, but what are they actually saying are the are the consequences? Well, I think they I think firstly, they just I don't know that they really believe them. I don't think, you know, it's <laughs> well, right when when asked about it. um, you know, I think this is why they've tried to really pressure Democrats into answering exactly, especially Joe Biden, what he's going to do. Yeah. Um, and, and Joe Biden kind of demurred at first uh, in the first presidential debate. He said, I don't want my answer on court packing to be, you know, the thing that we talk about when we should be right. talking about you rushing through Barrett. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Republicans, I think, are, are, you know, on the one hand, I, I think they're a little skeptical that this is going to get done. And they're kind of relying on the idea that maybe. Um, it'll lose steam should mm-hmm. Democrats win back um, the White House and the Senate. But I mean, I think the proof is in the pudding that they've they've started to introduce constitutional amendments to keep the number of justices uh, at nine. And they're mm-hmm. trying to get Democrats on record on what they on how they feel about the issue. But I think just to your point, yeah, they are saying that, you know, this is just going to be this is going to come down the road to bite you just like it did in two thousand and. 13 when senate majority leader then a democrat harry lee harry reed you know eliminated the filibuster and of course they say right you know that came back to bite you when we were able to just take a further step and put Mm -hmm. justice neil gorsuch on the court with a bare majority uh, of votes so i mean we mentioned earlier that this idea is something of a third rail and i i think you know even his strongest supporters would not say that joe biden is someone who is very often associated with radical, crazy, you know, ideas. He's he's a centrist. So, um, what what do we think? You know, I I know that he has said that he will set up a commission to look at reform. To, you know, what might we see uh, in terms of something less than court packing, something that is more centrist, something that is more of a truly neutral reform package. Right. So he says he's going to set up this commission. It's going to have both liberal and conservative law scholars on it, and they're going to take 180 days to get, come back to him with recommendations on what to do. Um, I, I think a lot of progressive activists were a little bit disappointed by that because they see that, you know, should he win the White House um, come Tuesday, time will be of the essence to get anything major done. This is mm-hmm. one of those situations where you have to strike while the iron's hot. And so they're not too pleased that it's going to take 180 days to even start the conversation around um, whatever the proposal is accepted. Republicans, on the other hand, say it's just essentially cover, bureaucratic cover by committee mm-hmm. for ultimately what will just be, in essence, a court packing plan. I don't know that we know a lot about what this commission is going to look like, who's going to be on it, and you know what ideas they're going to kind of coalesce around. But as you say, there are um, 
there are ideas short of court expansion that will probably yeah. be discussed. Well, yeah, let's 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 talk about some of those. We 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 mentioned them briefly up top, but like what what sort of middle of the road things could come out of this, you know, consensus commission or a a a, a reform commission or, right, because, or whatever it ends up looking like. Well, because and you know, you hear you hear this the the discussion of 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 uh you know, well, if you do this, when we'll do this, and if you do this, we'll do this. And it's an arms you know, race, yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, where where does it sort of begin to de-escalate or begin to sort of try to move towards something that isn't just uh, you know, topping the other the other side? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the more popular kind of de-escalation proposals out there is term limits. It's basically mm-hmm. setting a term for all justices of 18 years, this would give each president, you know, two appointments in each term in office. And so the idea there is that it would kind of lower the temperature on some of these appointments when you have right now, if you know, you're a justice that's appointed at the age in, in your early 50s, like all, all of Trump's uh, appointees. Yeah. Um, then you could serve for potentially 30 years. And, ha- and right. Just, not that 18 years is an insignificant amount of time to impose your will on the yeah. country, but it's no, less, less so. The problem, obviously, is that the Constitution says that, um, you know, just, justices of the Supreme Court shall serve in times of good behavior, which is obviously interpreted to mean life tenure. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. term limits doesn't exactly add up to that. And a lot of scholars say that you'll need a constitutional amendment, which can't be done by statute. So that would kind of be a little bit difficult for Democrats to pull off. Um, there's also other options, like I said, jurisdiction stripping, making it so that the Supreme Court actually isn't as powerful maybe as it is today when you have judicial review over all manner of statutes that Congress passes. Um, that also comes with a bit of constitutional uh, questions, and scholars are kind of divided over whether that would uphold, would be upheld, especially uh, a lot of these court proposals could conceivably end up in the current Supreme Court. Yeah, right. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. No, it's funny that we're, we're talking about them as like compromises or things, and then you're, you're rightly pointing out that some of the, quote, less extreme ones might actually be more difficult to pass uh, if it actually came to that. I, I think that is kind of the irony of the whole thing, is the easiest one to get done is what's considered to be the kind of the most radical, which is just adding numbers, yeah, right. uh, adding seats to the Supreme Court. I kind of want to just mention a couple others that I've read about. Yeah, sure, are, please. Yeah, uh, A little fascinating. One is the idea of like a super court of appeals where you have mm-hmm. um, basically panels of Supreme Courts um, that meet and decide cases. You basically... Uh, dial up their workload so they hear a lot more cases and in certain cases where you know th- they're divided they go up on bonk like we see in the mm-hmm. at the federal circuit level right uh, another idea is to have that's the exhibit sorry to interrupt you jimmy that's the exhibit pimp my ride i heard you like supreme courts so we put a supreme court in your supreme court <laughs> sorry go ahead that's, exactly yeah. that that is exactly it yes I, yeah. I i would love i would love to hear from the listeners about how many people understand that reference but anyway yeah. go ahead so another one is a rotating panel of Supreme Court justices. So when you appoint of yeah. Supreme Court justice, you're basically also appointing just a federal circuit judge. And mm-hmm. so the justices or these judges would kind of serve terms on the Supreme Court and they would meet and they wouldn't stay for 18 years or whatever. They would stay however long their single term was. And then afterwards, they would kind of descend back down to the federal appeals court level. And the idea idea there being... You know, there aren't these very ideological justices that get to kind of like pursue and this kind of crusade yeah. on the mm-hmm. law and they would just kind of be deciding cases as they as they came about. Uh, one 
one um, suggestion that that was kind of endorsed by Pete Buttigieg during the uh, Democratic primary. This was won by law professors Dan Epps and Ganesh Sitaraman. It had some uh, a bit of momentum to it. It was the idea of a balance bench, so kind of like party requirements, like they do in some state courts. I'm thinking in particular about Delaware, where you have. Uh, yeah. Five Republican affiliated justices, five Democratic affiliated justices, and five chosen by the justices themselves. Hmm. Uh, all these, all these proposals, they have they they have a lot of advantages and disadvantages in, in sure, terms of yeah. feasibility and workability. So that's why I keep coming back to the idea that I think the reason why you just constantly hear expand the court, pack the court, expand the court, pack the court is because it is the most feasible thing. I think. In terms well, and of it, what and, you can actually get done in in a and Congress. what I think what I think is so interesting is perhaps the the you know the ease or the feasibility of that plan, uh, you know the more radical plan. Perhaps that's a um, you know a negotiation tool, a a piece of leverage to get get the conversation toward one of these middle ground territories. That you know the middle ground maybe takes a constitutional amendment. Maybe it's a little harder to convince people to do. But if the if the alternative is is you know the the next president gets four Supreme Court nominees right away, maybe that's enough of a of a stick to to get us toward that middle ground. Yeah, the idea being like we'll just kind of blow the whole thing up. Like <laughs> if you're not right. going to give us this, we're just going to destroy the whole thing. Um, politicize nice Supreme it's, Court there. Be a shame if something happened to it. Yeah, politicize yeah. it so much that mm-hmm. it there's no longer anywhere to move forward from other than something like you know some bipartisan compromise to just like de-escalate i mean that that could be what the what the long-term strategy is um i don't know that we've necessarily seen that work in some of the escalationist tactics that we've seen from i think probably both sides for the last however many decades but yeah that that certainly could be the the thinking behind it well, it'll be interesting to see if we see that kind of de-escalation uh, or, if, or if these sort of wars over the Supreme Court continue for the foreseeable future. Jimmy, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, and, and as we mentioned earlier, everyone should go check out the term Jimmy's show. Uh, it's on iTunes or anywhere else you listen, to, you listen to podcasts. Jimmy, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks, guys. our show is something offbeat and guys one bucket we often have for these stories is when an attorney becomes a lawbreaker and i've got one in that vein to talk about today that's that's chief among my favorite uh of the stories we yeah do. this one's actually kind of intense um it's an <laughs> <Great>. ex <laughs> it's a it's an ex big law attorney who's been charged with a bank robbery spree in south florida you you i i i love it because for the last six months, we've all just kind of looked like bank robbers. Uh, you know, we look like Old West, like we're, we're, we're holding up a saloon in the Old West. This has some, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some details about what this, this fella did. Uh, it does have some classic bank robber stuff in it. So his okay. name is Aaron Honecker. He's 41 and he was arrested Tuesday night. He's charged with robbing two banks for a total of only $1,800 and also attempting to rob four more all within recent weeks. So it really Aaron, was a spree. 
you got to do better, bud. Like you could, you could bill that much in in like yeah. an hour if you just got promoted a couple times. I like, was surprised by the dollar figure. I, I mean, I guess it's hard to rob banks. I've never really thought about this, but I just have the movie conception of like you're going to get a lot more than eighteen hundred dollars. But it's hard, I think. Um, so here's what he did. I mean, you got to case the joint. You got to. I mean, all the all the good ones. You got to do your research. You got to know when it's coming in and out. You got to know which tellers are vulnerable, where the die pack is. You know. I mean, we Sounds like, goes. sounds like you're ready to rob a bank. Well, here's what Alex the just Alex has said. watched Heat. Alex has watched Heat many times. So uh. <laughs> I'm I'm going in reverse. I've had my brush with petty theft, and I will become a lawyer next year. That's what I'm going to do. I'm oh, going like to go. I call that order. the reverse. I call that the reverse Hanukkah. Uh, no, but uh, what <laughs> okay. else do we know? Yeah. So he entered each bank alone. He went up to the teller and asked for help making a withdrawal, which that's what he wanted. And then he would pass them a handwritten that's, that's, note. That's one way to put it, I suppose. <laughs> right? Yeah. He'd okay. pass them a handwritten note that had instructions and warnings on it. So they said things like, don't touch the alarm or call the police. Empty all your 50s and 100s and put them in this envelope. Uh, keep calm. Give me all the money in your drawer. I've got a gun. Like, What if he was just gun? being, uh, see, the gun is where it gets you. All that's, that earlier stuff he said could have just been like a really embellished way of him asking for his money out of his account. That's, put all the 50s in a bag the, the legally. There's nothing, re- there's nothing really wrong with just telling someone not to call the police. Like in a vacuum, you right, right. say, I, hey, by the way, Amber, don't call the police. Sure. Right. It's, it's lock you me know, up. I, it, yeah. maybe, you're, maybe you're reading more into it than I'm saying, but I'm just saying don't yeah. call the police don't call the police certainly don't touch the alarm well so here's what <laughs> happened when he comes in with those notes twice okay. this worked um okay. that the tellers gave him various sums of money one was a little over a thousand dollars one was eight hundred dollars there were three other instances where he went in handed off the note and for various reasons the crime fell apart and the teller didn't do what he wanted and oh, so boy. he just left he just left those banks he gave it a shot it didn't work he left um, on his sixth attempt in the Coral Gables, Florida area, a detective saw him like walking around outside of a bank there. At this point, he um, a suspect description was out to all law enforcement about these previous robberies. The detective thought it was probably their guy approached him and he was taken into custody as he was about to enter that bank. And he had some some evidence on him at the time. They found him with a hammer. The demand notes. Oh, and like also, I can't have a hammer. Oh, and the demand note. Oh, <laughs> well, okay, sorry. And then he also had this, which is my favorite part of the story. He had on his on him when they arrested him instructions on how to commit bank robberies. Love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Yeah. I've been trying to I've been trying to make a couple excuses for this guy, and he just keeps nope. running into the wall. I nope. mean, there's no way. Look, there's really yeah, around that. Thought. You got to do better. Lawyers are taught during their whole schooling yeah. and also during their careers. Research is key and important to win anything you're doing. He did his research. He had instructions on how to commit bank robberies. Um, well, so, can we... yeah, so he actually confessed, by the way. I should say okay. that, too. He did confess once he was in custody. Um, I, I just I feel like maybe we should end this. That's kind of the outline of what he did. Mm-hmm. I think it's so weird when attorneys take this sharp turn into illegality. So let me give you a few details about this guy. Say, yeah, what do we have any sense of what what led him? But I mean, yeah, let's talk about his bio yeah, a little it's, bit. It's then, hard yeah. to tell what went wrong in his life that led to this point. But there's a few. We are not FBI criminal profilers. I don't want to go down that yeah. road. But yeah, um, he was a bankruptcy attorney before this. So again, okay. dealing with numbers. Uh, 
He was admitted to the Florida bar in 2008, and his online bar profile says he's in good standing. He's never had any disciplinary problems or anything else at the bar. <laughs> no, previ- no previous bank robberies on his it, bar uh, It just makes <laughs> it seem so surprising, though, that you've never gotten in trouble, and then you're a bank robber. Um, he, I said up top he was a former big law um, attorney. He worked at Greenberg Traurig from 2008 to 2011. So it's, you a, know, it's a place you know everybody the, knows. You know the Greenberg Traurig people are like, yes, glad they named us. <laughs> <laughs> In fairness, he hasn't worked there since 2011. He went on to work at some Miami area firms, a few of them. The most recent one it has a little bit of a mysterious note to it. Um, when his most recent firm was contacted about this story, they told local reporters that two years ago he left the firm, quote, suddenly, and no one's heard from him since. It's almost like he's on the lamb. Almost. I mean, he- I read that they went into his office and found some ba- some bags with a dollar sign on it. <laughs> yeah. It was a big tell. Uh, also, a black bandana with eye holes in it. Very strange stuff. Just I don't telltale know. stuff right there along with the instructions about how to rob yeah, a bank. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the sort of strange tale of of this gentleman. He is currently in the legal process, but it's early days, so we'll have to wait to see what happens. But like I said, he did confess to this, so it'll probably be quick, quick, pretty quick moving um, to get him to the next stages. We're always right. trying to bring you young lawyers just actionable, you know tips about your career definitely don't rob banks. I, I you know it's just <laughs> it's a it's 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 not the best move. If you take nothing else away from this podcast, that's great advice. Um, or use a partner, a lookout. This sounds like he was flying okay. solo. Let's stick uh, with all right. Bill's oh, advice. All right. Sorry. Okay. None of Alex's advice. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, being with me on today's show, guys. Thanks a lot, Alex. All right. Bye. And Bill. See you again next week. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Our guest this week was Jimmy Hoover, and our contributing reporters, Nathan Hill, Mike Curley, and Pete Brush. Music for the show comes from silent partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left a written review anywhere you're listening right now so that other people can more easily find our show. And if you want to read more about the things we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.